This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Let's face it, bookkeeping is hard, and it's not really what you're good at anyway. Bench.co is the online bookkeeping service that pairs you with a team of dedicated bookkeepers who use simple, elegant software to do your bookkeeping for you. Check it out at bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber for 20% off today. They focus on what matters most, and that's why they're there. Once again, that's bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Wrangle.io. Wrangle's been working with Angular 2 for a long time. And they are now putting together an eight-hour, two-day course designed to help Angular developers learn how to write apps in Angular 2. If you're looking to level up your JavaScript and Angular 2 skills, then go to wrangle.io slash training and click on the link for Angular 2 training. If you're looking for other training in React or JavaScript, they also have that available at wrangle.io slash training. This episode is sponsored by Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Ugh! Relying on users to report errors, digging through log files to try debugging issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. It's easy to install, and you can start tracking production errors and deployments in 8 minutes or less. We have a special offer for JavaScript Jabber listeners. Go to rollbar.com jsjabber and sign up to get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked for free. Loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Instacart, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash jsjabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 225 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello. Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's John DeGoes. Howdy. Good to be here. You want to introduce yourself real quick? Yes, so I'm Johnny Goes. I am currently CTO at a company called Slam Data, and we do quite a lot of front-end programming. In fact, we just came out with release 3.0 of Slam Data out today, and it is probably the largest pure script code base in existence. So it's an example in the wild of both functional programming and Alt.js, uh, 100% open source and available on GitHub for people who want to take a look at what sort of scale that looks like in functional programming. What do you mean by Alt.js? Well, instead of developing this application in JavaScript, we're using one of the um, alternative languages that compile to JavaScript, in this case, PureScript. But TypeScript's an example of another one. Okay. And Dart and Elm and so forth. Basically, all these dozens and dozens of languages sprouting up that compile to uh, JavaScript. Interesting. So why build it in PureScript and go all functional programming on it? Well, first, can you tell us what PureScript is? 
Yeah, so PureScript is a, a statically typed, purely functional programming language that's inspired a great deal by Haskell. So if you're familiar with Haskell, then you'll feel right at home with PureScript. And if you're not, then you'll be totally confused by its syntax, by its semantics, by everything about it. But it does have a really good interface, JavaScript code. You can leverage existing JavaScript libraries. It has a very strong type system, not quite as strong as Haskell, but it's still amazingly powerful. And it has a lot of things that are designed to make it more familiar to JavaScript programmers, such as source maps, um, native JavaScript types for things like records and booleans and strings and so forth, arrays. And it's, it's a really, it's a great little, little language with a growing community. I've been really happy with it. I have a quick question, actually. Can you explain what you mean exactly by purely functional? Yeah, that's a great question. So basically, purely functional means that if ever you see a function inside a purely functional program, then you have the following guarantee if you pass the function the same arguments, you'll get back the same return value, always. And that's actually sort of the, the definition of a function, really. You know, it's, it's a mathematical function, maybe not a programming language function, but it's a really nice property to have because when you're testing, you know if you always pass it one, two, and three, you're always going to get back the same value. It's not going to change out from underneath you. And this property of being purely functional makes code not just easier to test, but also easier to understand in the large scale because there's less state that you have to keep track of in your head. Whereas a function that's not purely functional, you pass it one, two, three, one time and it will return hello world and pass it one, two, three, another time and it will return undefined, pass it one, two, three, another time and it's going to pop up an alert. Who really knows what's going to happen because its behavior is not dictated by its return value. It's dictated by all the other stuff it's doing behind the scenes, all the global variables it's reading and the console logging functions that it's calling and this and that. And purely functional programs um, don't have that property. It's all pass me your variables and I guarantee you I will always return the same thing. So first off, I want to uh, mention, we asked real quick what PureScript is, but if you want to know more about that, we did an episode with John and Phil Freeman back in December. So you can go check that out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And secondly, it seems like if you're building an application with purely functional stuff, then what about things like the global variable called your database or things like that where <laughs> you know you you have to deal with that right or an api that you're you're hitting or something like that can you write real world applications with purely functional stuff yes and in fact you can uh, in fact why don't i paste the screenshot into skype you can take a look and maybe upload it for your listeners but this is an example of the kind of real-world application you can build. All right. So the question is, can you build real-world applications with functional programming, which is actually probably the, the most common question that I get when I tell people that I'm a functional programmer. And the answer is, well, look at that screenshot there, and it will give you sort of a taste for the type of applications you can build in a purely functional style. And yeah, you're right. There are things like databases and things like uh, web servers that you have to call, and all of this involves lots of state. And functional, purely functional programming languages, they have a bunch of means to deal with such things. And the simplest is just to basically describe such effects as a hunk of code. So when you call a function that does like a run this query on this database, you get back not the result, but you get back a promise to run that result at some future time. And this is the idea behind Haskell's IO monad, and it's, it's the idea behind PureScript's F-type, 
And it's the idea behind uh, a lot of ways to model the sort of impure, messy stuff that happens in the real world. And what it does is it means that you pass a, a function, a parameter, like, you know, a, it's SQL query, and, and you get back um, this promise to run this hunk of code at a future time, which enables you to have a purely functional way to model that thing that we need to do, which is things like global state or third-party web services and so forth. And yeah, I mean, that's if you're going to write your whole functional program in that style by passing around hunks of code, it's going to be a lot harder to test and a lot harder to reason about. But uh, fortunately, in most cases, you can write like 90% of your program in a way that's much more declarative and easier to reason about. You're not just sort of passing around hunks of opaque code, but you're actually describing your, your problem at a high level in a declarative way. And then for the messy stuff that every single program has to do, you end up passing around these hunks of code or an equivalent technique. That's actually not the only technique in functional programming. It's not even the one we use in slam data. We use a more advanced one, but it's just the easiest one to describe. So I have a, I have a few questions. So I, I wasn't programming when object-oriented programming became like uh, the solution to everyone's problems. Yeah. But I, but I imagine it felt a lot like it feels to hear about functional programming. Like everything is better if you have these objects, they encapsulate all their state and they send messages to each other and you bundle their behavior and your data. And, and like you just get this long list of amazing benefits. And we have those with functional programming too, right? Easier to read about is one of the like key phrases that every functional programmer loves to say and, and pure functions and, and easier to test. But there's this giant laundry list of problems with object-oriented programming and some downfalls it encounters in the real world. And I feel like I don't hear any of that side about functional programming. Do you feel like you know enough to talk about maybe some of the, the weaknesses with functional programming, things that it struggles with or, or that teams might struggle to adopt it with or anything like that? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think that many of the problems in object-oriented programming, they became apparent after people started writing multi-million line of code applications and maintain those over some period of time. And as anyone who's ever worked in a Java code base of that size knows well, your application becomes so incredibly coupled. And reasoning about something becomes very, very difficult. And of course, programmers being programmers, they, um, they end up making shortcuts in many cases. And uh, that leads to things like singletons for basically passing around information, avoiding the need to propagate information through a billion different methods. And you see all these sort of um, just grossly uh, coupled and stateful patterns emerging in object-oriented programming in the wild at that scale. Functional programming has been around long enough. Unfortunately, we do have millions of lines of code code bases out there. And I'm not seeing the same types of problems that I see with object-oriented code bases. I think there still are problems. <laughs> Anytime you try to scale an app application, either by number of people or by size of the code base, you're going to run into problems in any paradigm. But I, I think the types of problems that you run into in functional programming are... Uh, more similar to the types of problems you run into in C. Obviously, you don't run in all, in, into all sorts of the same problems, but organization of your code base, how, how do you really organize a functional code base well in a way that lends itself to comprehension by developers new to the team, enables people to find what they're looking for, mm -hmm. helps uh, reduce reuse, and so forth. Those kinds of concerns that you see in a large uh, C code base 
um, you, you see in large functional programming code bases as well. The discoverability and sort of the ability for someone to just jump right in, know what to work on, know where to put stuff, that is an issue in large-scale uh, functional programming code bases. But what you don't see is a lot of the like super tight coupling between state. And you see this to some degree. I mean, <clears throat> I, I often talk about purely functional programming as being a strict superset of procedural programming. Anything you can do in an imperative programming language like C, you can do in a language like PureScript. Only you can do it better and easier. <laughs> so for example, you can pass around like, you know, functions instead of passing around void pointers that are pretending to be functions. Um, so you can you can do all the same types of stuff, which means that you can literally just sort of transition your code base to, to PureScript and it can just look like a C program. And uh, it'll be a C program with maybe stronger type level guarantees, but it will suffer from all sorts of the same problems that your C code base does when it comes time to reason about that. So you actually have to work to improve it, but I'd say your baseline level of quality is is basically like a, a C program code base and suffers from all the sorts of uh, problems that a large scale C code base does. Except seg faults. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you are guaranteed like no seg faults, no null pointer exceptions, no undefines, sure. none of that nasty stuff. And, and that's um, a benefit of like total functional programming is you call a function and you're going to get a value back. And it's not going to throw an exception. It's not going to give you null. It's not going to give you anything except what its type tells you. And having sure. that ability in a large code base is, just has a tremendously simplifying effect on the way you reason about it. So it, it sounds like you're saying there are still, it's not a silver bullet, but the baseline of just you go to write some code, you don't think about it a ton. The, the end result you'll get in a functional programming language is easier and to maintain and better than in, I guess, a procedural or, or object-oriented language. Yeah, I would say that. I would say even if you don't spend a lot of time working to sort of overcome your natural desire to write everything imperatively, the baseline is going to be uh, a bit better than what it's like in an imperative programming language like C, and certainly substantially better. At least my experience has been that large C code bases are easier to work on and easier to add people to the team than large uh, Java code bases, although sure. your mileage may vary. Sure. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the organization thing, because that's a thing that, that I've struggled with in functional programming is I just end up with a bag of functions. Yeah. <laughs> and everything feels like it's at the same level of abstraction. It takes in some stuff and puts some stuff out and they're all just kind of grouped together in like the order I wrote them, I guess. And so, so how do you organize a, a code base? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I think the, the answers to that are, are still emerging but um, I would say that first off, that feeling of I just have a bag of functions, even though it's sort of, you know, revolting a little bit, right? Because, you know, if you're used to object-oriented programming or even procedural ones, you have like standard ways of organizing code in these. And it's a bit more foreign when all you have are a bunch of pure functions and a bunch of, of data constructors. It takes on a different feel. So what I would do is, is say, first off, it's not such a terrible, awful thing that all you have is a bag of loosely coupled functions because in the long run, the fact that those functions and the data are not strongly coupled is most likely going to enable you to more easily change that code base over time because you'll be able to throw away half the functions without really having an impact on the other half. And that's one of the properties that I've seen in larger functional code bases is you can literally just throw stuff away and replace it with new stuff and there's less 
layers of like tangling and coupling that you that you see in um, in imperative code bases. So first off, that's not a necessarily a bad problem to have, but I do see that, and I think that to some degree the answer is um, grouping uh, related functionality together. So for example, data and functions that operate on those types of data structures. And if you are in a language like PureScript that has type classes, then you group type classes and, and then instances for the type classes with data that implements them and so forth. So you have baseline levels of let's just keep stuff that works on the same data structures or works on the same type classes. Let's keep all that stuff together. And that works reasonably well, but it still doesn't give you any sort of clue or guide for how you do the large scale architecture of your program. And what I've been recommending and, and, and an approach that I've been a big, big um, advocate for is so-called, you know, modern architecture for functional programming in which you structure your application as almost a series of layers of an onion. And in the innermost part of your program, you're talking the business language. So your acceptance tests or whatever you have, you know, whatever is driving requirements for the product, you're speaking that language. And then you express that language in terms of a lower level language. And um, ultimately, you sort of boil everything down to Ajax calls and DOM effects. But you don't speak in those terms right away. You speak at higher levels of abstraction and gradually sort of compile down to the lower levels of abstraction. And I wrote a blog about this on degos.net. It's called Modern FP Architecture or something like that, but also be writing a sequel to that in the next week or two. So it's actually pretty timely. And I do think that of all the approaches I've seen to organizing large-scale functional programs, that's by far the best. And it shows a lot of promise for the future, in my opinion. So I wanted to back up a little bit and ask a couple of questions. I know like the last time that we talked to you, I, I had some of these questions, but I feel like functional programming is pretty intimidating to a lot of people. So I just wanted to like bring that up because I feel like as we're talking, there might be listeners. There's kind of like this elephant in the room where, especially for new beginners, I know I worked in a code base at one point and we made the choice that we would not use like currying or partial application because we wanted the code base to be super readable for all different skill levels. And for somebody like straight out of a boot camp or something, that's not always the most readable. So I guess I kind of, I don't have like a specific question, just kind of like your thoughts around this topic. So do you think it's still a good choice for a code base where you want to work with people of all levels? And then Another kind of question is, what advice do you have to people? I'm assuming you've been programming for years, but what advice would you have to people who are interested, but they're feeling intimidated? Like, kind of, how do you get started? (laughs) Yeah, so those are really great questions. And I think to answer the latter one first... Hopefully, I won't forget the first one. It's a I can I can react it. I, I know I, that was a, that was just a lot of thoughts and questions all at once. No, that's, that's good stuff. Uh, I think to take that latter one first. I think well, first off, like first time I tried to learn functional programming, I failed. <laughs> I went that's like, good. and I. <laughs> Thank you for admitting that. <laughs> I'm happy to admit that. I went and I played a Haskell and thought, no, I, I don't know the syntax. This isn't like C like or Java like. And what are all these strange terms and weird operators? And what's infix L mean? And what's all this crap? No way. And I just, you know, ran away from it screaming in terror like most people do. <laughs> <laughs> because it is, it's different, and different can be scary. Um, but eventually, I, I sort of crept into functional programming through the back door by just seeing what a difference 
on a very large 400,000 line of code Java application, immutable data structures made and how just profoundly simplifying that had on the application. Just a simple thing like immutable data makes a huge difference in your application. And eventually that enticed me to learn Scala and I picked up functional programming from there. And then the next time I went back to Haskell, I'm like, okay, you know, this is less terrible than it was to begin with. But I think to answer your question, like, yes, it is unfamiliar and it's unfamiliar not because it's necessarily very complex. Uh, it's unfamiliar, or, or rather it's, it's scary, not because it's uh, complex, but it's scary because it is unfamiliar. And an example of that is I know two people whose first programming language was uh, statically typed, purely functional programming language. Did they have any of the same problems that I encountered when they ran into it? No, because they had no set expectations. And, and for them, like the syntax of JavaScript was super scary. <laughs> and like all the rules and exceptions for equality and scoping and this and that, like super scary, right? And if you think back to the time when you were learning JavaScript, you're probably like, yeah, that confused me for a good long while. And, you know, I still get tripped up when I'm writing native JavaScript occasionally on, on something. And yeah, for, for someone who's never seen that before, that could be as scary as, as Haskell. I think the fact that Haskell is and PureScript and all these other statically typed, purely functional programming languages are so different doesn't necessarily mean they are hard. But I do want to acknowledge the fact that first time I went there, you know, I ran away screaming in terror. And it took me a while to get back into it. And what I would say is like one of the strengths that we can cultivate as a developer is the ability to learn new things Definitely. because our, yeah. our industry is always changing, right? And yeah. JavaScript, especially like who heard of React four years ago <laughs> and, and just all the build tools out there, all the JavaScript frameworks, all the libraries, it's just constant, constantly changing. And the more we work on overcoming that sort of, you know, gut level reaction to run and, and scream in terror, then um, I think the faster progress we'll make as professional developers. But acknowledging that fear and saying, yes, you know, I'm going to look at this and it's going to be scary. And if I introduce it into my team, it's, it's probably going to be scary for people. And then working on strategies to deal with that fear and to overcome it and to do it like bit by bit in, instead of perhaps all at once, I think those are all very good things and, and good ways to, to focus the problem on. Yeah, I agree. Because I, I feel like, so you can like borrow some functional concepts in JavaScript or something yeah. like that, but that like you can do like pure functions or you can, that kind of thing, but that really only gets you so far. And if you really want to like go full on functional, then that's when it starts to get pretty intimidating. And you don't want to use JavaScript for that because that's just not how JavaScript was designed. That's right. And Elm was obviously designed to address that gap. Um, and I think it does a reasonably good job. A lot of people who, who tried Haskell said, no, not for me. They tried Elm and they're like, yeah, you know, this is still a big leap, but I can sort of get it. Um, and I, I think that's a great way to approach it is find, find something sort of intermediate like Elm. You know, after you've, after you've done the, okay, immutable data and like operations on immutable data structures uh, with some of the libraries out there like immutable JS, then sort of the next step is, okay, what's going to get me on the other side of this divide in a language like Elm where you have uh, a lot of the functional concepts, but they've been greatly simplified and the tooling is really excellent, can help you get over to, to that other side where, where you can begin to approach languages like Haskell and, and PureScript um, without fearing as much. One thing that kind of helped me with that as well was learning a little bit about the history of functional programming. Uh, I know when I first learned to program, most of the languages I learned were all kind of similar, like 
you kind of squint Ruby and Python and JavaScript and even Java, like statically typed languages like that, they all are, are more similar to each other yeah. than they are to the statically typed purely functional kind of family of languages. And a lot of that I think comes down to the, their genealogy, like our purely functional languages tend to come from a, an academic history and background and they're a lot more uh linked to some mathematical research stuff so they just have like a it, it's like a different family of spoken languages right there's kind of the germanic language right. romance languages if you learn one of those it's pretty easy to learn all the rest of them but then if you learn a bunch of romance languages and you try and learn something like mandarin like all yeah. those <laughs> up in your head about this is generally how languages work just get thrown away completely and there are a whole bunch of new concepts so recognizing that actually helped me because it made me feel less bad about being totally baffled and bewildered by these new concepts. I love that analogy just with natural languages, just the fact that there are families and the syntax can be a big thing for some people. Even even if, if the concepts aren't that complex, especially in a language like Elm, it does have a totally different syntax. And But once you learn that one one thing over there in that family of languages, the others become a lot less intimidating. Sure. I think we're, to some degree, we're still figuring out how to teach this stuff. There hasn't been the same level of effort put into educational resources in functional programming that there has been in object-oriented programming. So we, we all know how to teach object-oriented programming now, right? Like you have your standard animal hierarchy or a shape hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs> These things that we've all seen a million times and like we know how to teach that. But I think we're still figuring out. We're making progress with things like HaskellBook.com, but we're still figuring out how to teach this new style of programming. And when once we become better teachers, then a lot of this stuff is just going to take care of itself because you'll have so many people who are writing functional programming, familiar with the concepts, and who know how to explain it to others because that path has been forged. It's going to become a lot easier for the, the population in general. And then your uh, first question was, how do you introduce it to a team or do you introduce it to a team? That was kind of a question that I had too. Yeah. Do you think it's a wise, wise choice for a team where there's, you know, junior developers and senior developers all in the same code base? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I think that the answer depends on whether or not you're going to have management support for junior developers. Because you're right, someone can come out of a coding camp and they, they know how to write Ruby, right? Or, or JavaScript or whatever it is they learned. And they can immediately jump into a code base and they can start being somewhat productive. You can give them a little like bug ticket or something like that and they can go in and there and take that on. Maybe with a little help, a little pairing. They can take that on, complete it, and they can ship code probably on day one. And if you take someone from a coding camp just learned um, one of these languages and you put them in a totally different paradigm in a language with a totally different syntax and with totally different set of best practices that doesn't at all resemble anything they learned in coding camp, it's going to be very confusing. And I'm not going to say it can't be done because um, actually my company has done it at least once. I'm taking a graduate from a coding camp and bringing her all the way up to functional programming. But it's not easy and it's not natural and it requires a certain degree of support and help that may or may not be there depending on how the team is structured and, you know, management's expectations around new hires, especially junior hires. So I would honestly not choose a statically typed, purely functional programming language for the front end if I knew that we were going to be 
I'm hiring a bunch of people from coding camps and a bunch of junior developers unless management understood what was going on there and and gave their support to offering an additional level of mentoring and pair programming that's necessary to more quickly ramp these people up into totally different paradigm and language and syntax. So I want to ask you about the rise of functional programming in JavaScript specifically. It's, it seems like it's spread a lot just in programming in general, but especially in JavaScript, there's so much excitement about it and interest in it and all the Alt.js languages. Why do you think that is? I've thought about that a lot. And I honestly don't really know why there's this special affinity for functional programming in JavaScript land. I do know that having worked on server-side apps and desktop applications and games and scientific software and simulations and just about software everywhere over every part of the landscape, user interfaces are really hard. They are really hard to get right. And they don't scale very well. You can add a, a few people to a team, but then after a certain point, it becomes very difficult. And once the code base crosses a thir- certain threshold, then you accept that any new feature you add is going to add its line count in bugs and new bugs into the code. It just becomes very, very important to have QA and then you have like manual QA process. The, the complexity of user applications is just tremendous, especially compared to a lot of the other types of applications I've worked on. The potential for bugs, the amount of state there is insane. And like the ways that you can tangle up a front end, and I've done many times with jQuery doing terrible, terrible things that I don't even want to talk about um, with, you know, jQuery and dynamic, like cheating the DOM as a database and all sorts of other things that I've done. I've created applications I, I couldn't even understand myself six months after I wrote them, let alone maintain them. And I think that this complexity problem and this state problem and this um, maintainability problem, this comprehension problem that we have, this testing problem, you know, how do you test these things? Selenium's crap, web drivers crap, all this stuff is, you know, terrible, varying degrees of terribleness. And functional programming comes along and says, well, maybe our view should be a function from state to a bunch of DOM, a DOM model, a DOM data model. And that is just sort of a profoundly, that's React, that's a profoundly simplifying uh, way of solving the user interface problem. So I think that, and, and also things with like, you know, Observables Rx and, and Cycle.js and its family of programs in which you reason about things using streams, you know, like more like Elm. Um, it has a profoundly simplifying effect on the way that you reason about your, your front-end user application. And I think that because the benefits, even, even in the small scale, like React is not a purely functional thing by any means, but nonetheless, it takes a very simple concept in functional programming and applies it to building user interfaces and has such a profoundly simplifying effect on the way you structure these things that its benefits sell themselves. You don't have to sell them. <laughs> you could just look at a, a big jQuery UE app and look at a big React app and it'll sell itself. So I think the fact that UE programming is so insanely complicated just on every sort of possible dimension. And uh, the fact that just a few principles that have been yanked out of functional programming and and applied to UE programming have tremendously simplified it is uh, a big driver for the tendency of JavaScript programmers to embrace principles from functional programming and also Alt.js languages that support functional programming well, like Elm and PureScript and so forth. 
that would just be a guess though. Honestly, I've, I've wondered the same thing, you know, why, why are you seeing all this functional activity on the front end? But I think that has to be at least part of it. Sure. That makes sense. So let's say that you've completely convinced me functional programming is the stuff. And I've got this procedural slash prototypal slash jQuery slash mess that I'm dealing with right now. And I'm like, well, if it simplifies it that much, I've got to try it. How do I start fitting my current application into a system like this so that it's so that I'm getting these benefits out of it? I mean, it's one thing to start fresh. It's another thing to to move a working application into a paradigm like this. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And I think that there's always going to be limitations with existing applications. And and that's because you've got customers, you've got deadlines, you've got stuff in your sprint that has to be shipped. You've got all these external pressures that are going to be uh, driving you to make changes incrementally and in a way that minimizes risk, but also sort of minimizes value too. That's one of the, the flip sides. So I think that you sort of have to accept there's if you're starting off with a jQuery UA application, then there's you, you can't you can't expect to change the world, certainly not, you know, all at once. Over time I think you'll be able to make some progress in improving the way the code is structured, but it may be more through application of principles in functional programming versus like you're never gonna have the time most likely to just do a wholesale rewrite to React or rewrite to Cycle or rewrite to one of these other different paradigms. And most likely, you're probably not going to have the option of going with an Alt.js language like Elm or PureScript. You're just not going to get there. So what I would say is if there's one thing that you can do incrementally, it's, it's to focus on making your functions pure over time. Focus on using immutable data structures when that's possible. And I, I think you can start with that more or less anywhere. Like you can literally make small changes in your code base every time you're in there. And ultimately you're going to run into the limitations of jQuery with the more stuff you can pull out as pure functions and the more data structures you can convert to be immutable, the easier it's going to be to do further architectural refactoring because things will be less coupled. And the implications of one change will be clear when you're in there modifying the code base, the implications of something will be much clearer because functional programs do this a nice little inversion of control thing where you can pass something to someone else and it's not going to change out from underneath you. So it gives you a confidence when you're writing code. I'm going to pass that over there and I know nothing bad's going to happen to it. All I have to worry about is the return value from that function and what I'm going to do with it, if anything. So I'd say that by focusing on, on changing as many functions as you can to, to be um, pure functions so they're easier to reason about, by using immutable data structures and so forth, you can achieve a lot of low-hanging fruit benefits of functional programming without abandoning jQuery UE, which is most likely not something that's going to happen unless you have support for management, which could happen. Like it, Ultimately, I've, I've seen this one shop, they had a jQuery UE application that was uh, complex. It was written and maintained by a bunch of different developers, and it got to the point where it was just so buggy and it was so hard to add new features to that code base. They said, okay, we're going to give you six months. Go out there and use whatever you want. And they ended up using Elm in order to uh, rebuild the, the second version of that. And that was because I, I think the developers made a very good case in that particular scenario that the complexity of the application was such that they were not going to be able to ship features at the rate they wanted. 
and not with the quality that they wanted. And so it was worth taking a little bit of time out for the next version of the product, which had like lots of changes anyway that would have required a rewrite of a good chunk of it. I think the argument you just made about this app is so complex that we need to do it in, in a different language is really interesting. Because I feel like I've heard the opposite argument a lot where we have to do all these complex DOM interactions and, and it's unclear how we would get this done in a pure language or a language that has all these extra limitations. In JavaScript, you just do whatever you want. So you can do all these crazy, hacky, cool animation things. And it, it just seems like the path to accomplish your product goals is sometimes clearer, whether that's from familiarity with the language or, or the power of the language itself. But I have heard the opposite argued from what you just said. So I'm interested in, in the argument that it's actually going to be easier for us to build this app in, in this more restricted kind of uh, language that tries to guide you towards good decisions. I, I think that's very interesting. And it's uh, a pain that I have felt. Basically, when you're working within the constraints of purely functional programming, and you have all these strong types and so forth, and you're trying for good architecture, it does constrain how you solve a problem. Whereas in a JavaScript code base, where there's sort of just, you know, one type, the type of everything, and in which you can implement a feature in probably an almost unbounded number of ways. You can add global variables, you can do callbacks, you can just, you can add it here in these listeners, or you can add it over there or some combination of the two. There's lots of ways to implement anything. At the end of the day, you have sort of unbounded flexibility to shoot yourself in the foot. (laughs) And the plus side of that is you can get anything done. And um, because you don't have to follow any rules, you can usually get it done reasonably quickly. However, the trade-off, there's actually a couple of trade-offs. One of the trade-offs is that if there is a bad way of doing it and it takes less than a good way of doing it, you're probably going to do that unless you have, like again, management support for doing things the best way. And what that means is you're going to, you know, you're going to add some lines of code that you know at the time are just going to create bugs down the line or maybe even bugs right there because you don't exactly understand how the existing code works and you're just incorporating this sort of sideways to disturb as little as possible. And so you, you do that and you make a trade-off on the long-term maintain, maintainability and the quality of, of the code base. And, and that is something that's going to have a very real cost to the business. We, we tend to discount that, but nonetheless, there's, there's that real cost. Whereas if you're approaching it from a language like Elm or PureScript and you go in there, well, there's going to be fewer ways to implement it. And yes, that means in general, I think you're going to spend longer implementing it because you're going to have to uh, go through you're going to have to, you know, prove to the compiler that the types are going to line up correctly. You're not going to be able to use, or at least not easily, mutable variables everywhere over your code base. You're going to have to uh, thread state through your application. But even though it takes longer to implement a feature, the benefits are that uh, you, you threaded that state through explicitly. So you don't have to reason about all the background stuff happening in your application. The types are reflected in the, in the code base, so you have that extra docu- documentation. And in my opinion, ultimately, it comes down to uh, the lifespan of the application. If, if you're targeting an application that's not designed to be around very long or which like has unknown lifespan because it's an experiment, then just hacking things together in as fast a fashion as possible is going to deliver more business value per unit time than purely functional programming. On the other hand, I would say, if you're going to be maintaining this application for a long period of time, you're going to be adding new developers, it's like you're going to scale and scale and scale this thing, then even though it's slower to start, eventually you reach a point where 
the benefits of that approach far outweigh the approach of the other. And because you have like a lot of programmers all working on a large code base with the protection of a very strong static type system and in an, in an environment that constrains you to do things in a way that's easier to reason about. And so you, you end up being able to make more reliable progress over the long term, like less, less risky progress. And there's no like, oh my goodness, there's no way to do this now. Or, or the code base is so terrible, we have to spend 50% of our time just fixing bugs. But it, it's a trade-off that I think different companies will uh, fall on different sides of that for very legitimate reasons in, in different cases, just because some, some apps are not going to be there. And you don't even know if some apps are going to be there for very long. And it, it makes more sense to just hack in stuff as, as fast as you can, rather than trying to take the time to figure out how to do it in a way that's going to minimize your long-term cost of maintaining that code base and adding new devs to the team. That makes sense. An example is um, if you were to jump into the Slam data code base, most likely any change you make would result in a compiler error. <laughs> and the compiler would be like, say, <laughs> no, you can't do that. Sorry. I know you want to do that, but you can't do that. And like the compiler would be like continuously sort of beating you up about, nope, that's not going to work. Sorry. And, you know, that could be considered a bad thing if, like, it was a small team and we needed to shift, ship stuff yesterday. But if you were working on the Slam Data code base, you know, you were the next hire out of however many hires, that can actually be a good thing, too. Like, because if, if the code base were entirely all JavaScript and it were all jQuery UE and stuff, like, you could jump in tomorrow and you could make a change and there would be no compilers to complain about it. And it didn't matter what change you made you would probably go through and possibly even make it all the way to production, regardless of the implications of that change of the, on the quality of the code base or ease of comprehension or whether or not it's even like proved to be correct at compile time by the compiler. So those are the trade-offs that, that every company needs to evaluate, I think, uh, on a case-by-case basis. Sure. Okay. My question is about Alt.js in general. Yes. So the trade-off it feels like you make when you choose a language like PureScript or Elm or ClojureScript or any of these non-JavaScript languages is you're trading power in a language. The language has all these extra features that JavaScript doesn't have that you you feel are very valuable um, for size of community. I imagine the PureScript community is maybe a couple orders of magnitude smaller than the JavaScript community. At least. Um, so there's there's just a lot fewer people working to solve common problems. And, and you could argue you just avoid some problems because of the language, but there are still, I mean, you need like a date time library. You need to make Ajax calls and someone has to read that spec and make sure it's doing all the right stuff. And I don't know, there, there's just a lot fewer people working on, on the same problem. How do you weigh those trade-offs? So for me, I always gravitate towards languages like Alt.js Alt or Alt.jvm languages <laughs> that are able to reuse existing libraries in the ecosystem. And that's why for our, our backend infrastructure, we use Scala. And we use Scala, it's basically an alt JVM language, right? Java was the original, but now you can run all these other different languages on the JVM. And one of the great things about Scala is that because it runs on the JVM, it has seamless interop with literally like tens of thousands of really great open source libraries that have just decades and decades of developer time spent into improving them and making sure they're robust and using them in production cases. And I feel like it is useful to be able to leverage the just vast, vast JavaScript ecosystem 
that is, it does, it's not standing still. <laughs> it doesn't wait, wait around just because uh, a bunch of people have gone off and, and done some Alt.js stuff. It keeps on advancing at a very fast pace. And that's great. And I want to be able to take advantage of all the libraries out there inside of my application. And that's one of the reasons that I gravitated towards PureScript versus some of the other languages. For example, Haskell actually runs it in the browser, but it's not a particularly good fit for the browser. And it's hard to reuse JavaScript code in Haskell. It's really, it's really sort of nasty and messy. And same for Elm. Like Elm, you can sort of reuse JavaScript code, but it's a bit of a pain. And for me, like there's, there's so many components inside of a slam data or application that we reuse. Like we reuse the ace editor. We reuse e-charts. We, we use lots of stuff, just tons and tons of stuff inside the JavaScript ecosystem. And what's enabled um, that to happen uh, is uh, PureScript's really, really good support for integrating with existing JavaScript code bases. So it's almost trivial to, to reuse other stuff out there inside the JavaScript ecosystem. And that enables the whole front-end team to benefit from all the work that has been done and continues to be done inside the JavaScript ecosystem and not having to reinvent every wheel from scratch. Some wheels are probably worth inventing just because you can do a fundamentally different approach inside of PureScript than you can in JavaScript. But some wheels are like daytime stuff. You know, that's a great example. There's Moment.js and lots of other great libraries out there for date-time manipulation. There's no need to reinvent those. And, and an Alt.js language like PureScript gives you the option of reusing all that stuff without any pain or without much pain anyway. Cool. Yeah, I found the, the same thing kind of works with uh, some of the other things that I've done with TypeScript and Angular. Yeah. You just pull it in. It's part of the build process. As long as it can export the module and do all the other stuff, then it works and it works seamlessly. It's not like I have to go and bend it to my will or write glue code. It just sucks it in and says, yeah, you can do that. And it's good. Yeah. TypeScript does an awesome job with that. And there are all these IDLs out there for all these different libraries that you can just reuse. You know, most likely if it's a popular library, you don't even, you don't even have to write the IDL. It's just already out there. And at worst, you might have to maintain it. So I, I think that's definitely the way to go. If you want to reuse a lot of JavaScript code, then pay a lot of attention to the foreign function interface for your Alt.js language. Because otherwise, you're going to be reinventing everything from scratch or going through a, a lot of pain and jumping through a lot of hoops to reuse some JavaScript code. All right. Any other questions before we hit picks? I'm fresh out. Nothing here. All right. Let's go ahead and do some picks then. Amy, do you have some picks for us? Sure. So... Hopefully mine is not too much of a repeat for people um, because it's actually from Ruby Rogues, but I, I liked it so much that I wanted to share it here in case there's not an overlap. But it's a talk. I'm Chuck. You'll probably do a better job with her last name, but she was actually just on Ruby Rogues. It's Nadia, and her talk is um, on code hospitality. I think she did this at RubyConf this year or RailsConf or, or one of the Ruby conferences. But anyways, her episode on Ruby Rogues was really, really good. And then the talk itself is just really, really good. So I'll put a link in the show notes and maybe Chuck, I'm not sure if you can help me on her name, but. <laughs> yeah, Nadia Adunayo. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it was just really, really good. So Yeah, she was a lot of fun to talk to. So yeah, definitely yep. check that out. Jameson, what are your picks? Yeah, I have three picks. The first one is both self-serving and not self-serving. React Rally is a conference. It's in Salt Lake City, August 25th and 26th. 
We have some amazing people from the React community coming to talk to us about cool things they built. And uh, we have a bunch of fun activities planned. So if you go to reactrally.com, you can buy tickets. And uh, I will be happy because there will be more people there and we can do more cool stuff. And you'll be happy because you will learn cool things. Uh, my other two picks, one of them is a blog post about, it shows refactoring a chunk of code from kind of a, an imperative style to a functional style. And it's very detailed, almost too detailed in some places. You're like, yeah, okay, you moved this function down there. But if you're interested in looking at what it might look like to do some of the things that, that we talked about today about kind of incrementally adding functional concept to a code base, this is a really interesting read on it. And I think the code is a lot easier to understand and, and feels a lot better at the end. Uh, and my last pick is a site called pgexercises.com. Um, it's just kind of an interactive online SQL tutorial. So the, they have this browser interface to a SQL database, and uh, it's got a schema loaded with data in it already and everything. And then they just give you a bunch of tasks and, and kind of explain how you might walk through those tasks. And I'm trying to brush up my SQL skills, and this has been really helpful. So those are my picks. Nice. I'm going to jump in here next. I was at Podcast Movement last week, uh, which is a big podcast or a big conference for podcasters, as you can imagine. Had a ton of fun, learned a ton of great things, going to be changing some things up as far as our process goes to make the shows hopefully better than they are, though I know a lot of people really love them. So uh, anyway, I just got some ideas I'm going to try out, and we're going to see how they affect things. But while I was there... I had to run to the Apple store like three times because my iPhone broke. It was like 10 or 15 minute walk from the hotel the, where the conference was. So I just walked down Michigan Avenue and walked back. But while I was there, I was tempted and lured and bought the iPad Pro. And the iPad Pro is awesome. And there are a few things that I really like about it. I'm not going to give a full review here. I should probably do that, though, at some point. And I'm starting to do more periscopes and video things. So if you follow me on Twitter, then I should be announcing when I'm doing those before I do them. So just follow me, CMAXW or CMAXW. And I'm probably going to turn it into some kind of show, some video show or vlog or something. Anyway, not quite sure on that yet. But anyway, so the iPad Pro has a smart keyboard. And one of the things that was nice is that it fits really nicely on the tray table thing that you have on the back of the seat of the person in front of you on the airplane. My laptop is just slightly too big. I think it's a 13-inch screen, and it just doesn't fit well there, especially if they lean the seat back, and the iPad Pro did. Um, the smart keyboard is really nice. Uh, it looks like a nice cover on the iPad if you're using it that way, and, it, yeah, it just works really great. I love the way it folds out, and it has a magnetic stopper grabber thing that just works. But the thing that really got me with it was that I was using the Apple Pencil to take notes in an app called GoodNotes. And uh, GoodNotes is a note-taking app for iPad. Uh, you can type in it, sure, but the other thing that you can do is you can use the Apple Pencil and it just tell, asks you what uh, ruling you want on your paper. And then you can take your notes and it will actually do OCR on your handwriting and you can do full text search on your notes, your handwritten notes. So I could just kind of jot down the things that I really wanted to check out and it was good enough to actually go and pull that stuff off, which was awesome. So anyway, if you're looking for something that you can kind of set on your lap and type on without it being as bulky as a laptop or something that travels well or something you can take notes on like you would a piece of paper that is a piece of technology that you can take with you and blah, 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 uh, then definitely check out the iPad Pro. And uh, I super loved good notes. Uh, one other thing that I'll shout out about that is that yesterday I was at the cafe. And while I was on the airplane where the 
uh, Wi-Fi just wasn't great. My laptop was hanging up trying to pull up the interface where I can write an email in Gmail. And by having the iPad Pro, all of that interface work. It doesn't have to load it from a server or anywhere. It doesn't have to talk to anything to make that work. So I would just reply and type it and send it, and then it would churn in the background sending that email, and I could move on to the next thing. So um, it was just a function of having a native interface, or at least an interface that ran completely on the iPad, and that worked out real nice too. So lots of stuff that I like about it, and uh, yeah, that's my pick this week. Uh, John, what are your picks this week? Well, I've been uh, actually so busy working on the release of uh, my company's product, (laughs) I haven't had a chance to do a lot of outside reading or anything. But um, I'll, I'll throw one in there, and that is a topic I have been spending some time on prior to this release, and that's Halogen, which is a pure script library for doing user interfaces. It's basically pure script's version of React with uh, a little stronger typing. And one of the things I've been working on for the next version of the library is also something I think is going to be important for the next uh, generation of JavaScript libraries, which is this notion of incremental computation. In fact, that right now, a lot of the libraries basically require you to transform your state into the, the UE. And, and that happens all the time. It happens continuously. And what we really want to say is we have this small little change, this delta state, if you, if you will, this little change to our state, which could be adding something to a list, for example. And how do we map that change in state, that addition of an item to a list, into a change in the user interface? And I actually think that um, if that problem can be solved in a declarative fashion, then that's going to be the next wave of JavaScript libraries. Like what happens after React? React is great, obviously, and we have the FRP stuff already. But what's after that? What's the step after that? And the work I've been doing on on Halogen around incremental computation and mapping changes in state to changes in in the DOM, I think is, is possibly a way to scale up the functional approach to very, very large uh, systems. Like for my company, we do data visualization and sticking 100,000 points inside your state and rendering that to a virtual DOM every time something changes just can't happen. So we need a solution that can deal with those types of situations, one that can sort of leak information into the environment. And the only approach that seems promising is, is one based on incremental computation. So that'll be my, my sole pick. And obviously, if, if companies are, or if people, users... Uh, want to check out the source code to a large-scale application written in PureScript, then that's on github.com. Let me just type this in, github.com slash slam data. And they can sort of see what it's like to build a large application that has lots of animations and it's very responsive and that reuses a lot of JavaScript libraries um, in the PureScript language. Sounds really cool. If people want to know what you're, uh, what else you're working on or follow you on Twitter or anything like that, what do they do? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at JDGoes, and I also have a, a blog, dgoes.net, and uh, look for an upcoming blog post I'll post by the end of the week on a, a successor to that modern FP architecture thing that some listeners might find interesting. Thanks. Very cool. All right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming, and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 